Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today Peter Kwasniewski's new book. Then I will rant for a while about sacred liturgy and tackle a question that was put to me recently by email about whether or not the Novus Ordo is evil. Let's get to work. There arrived today in my mailbox a copy of a new book by Peter Kwasniewski entitled Reclaiming Our Roman Catholic Birthright, The Genius and Timeliness of the Traditional Latin Mass. It's published by the ever more valuable Angelico Press. Gosh, I, I really admire this publishing house. They are printing really good things. The new book was inscribed, and there was a handwritten letter from Peter tucked into the cover. Uh, he describes in his letter uh, his own book in his own words, and I can't do better than that. So this is what Peter wrote to me. I poured myself into this book like none other. My goal was to make the ultimate apologetic manual for the TLM. Of course, that means traditional Latin Mass. Equipping its proponents with arguments, persuading the curious or open-minded, and responding to every objection one hears, both from the ignorant and from the educated. I take pains to explain my terms, hence the glossary, and try to avoid inside baseball. While the focus is on the Mass, there are frequent men mentions of the other sacramental rites, the divine office, blessings and exorcisms, and, in general, the entire holistic shape of traditional Catholic life, which follows the great law lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Thus, the book engages the entire problem of Vatican II's aggiornamento, and how it soured into desacralization and secularism. The book is also intended to be concrete and practical. For example, Chapter 3 explains various ways of participating fruitfully in the traditional Mass. Chapters 17 to 20 are directed to parents, or would-be parents, telling them why the TLM is so important for forming the minds and hearts of children, and delving into how parents can assist children in assimilating its riches. Chapter 22 talks about why those who are pro-life should also be pro-tradition. The chapter I'm most excited about is Chapter 2, which is my attempt to sum up why the TLM is the way it is, and how it works for God's glory and our own sanctification, and why it will always work. That was the author describing in his personal handwritten letter to me uh, about his own book, about his new book. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this book, but I found some items in it already that are so good that I thought I would share them with you and then make this, make this new podcast. 
because there are some things rattling around in my head that I have to get out. First of all, however, let me share a little bit of this book with you. I'm going to read part of the first chapter, and it's self-explanatory. I'm just going to get right into it. This is from Reclaiming Our Roman Catholic Birthright, The Genius and Timeliness of the Traditional Latin Mass by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. Chapter 1, Taste and See, Ten Reasons to Attend the Mass of Ages. Given that it can be less convenient for a person or a family to attend the traditional Latin Mass, and I am thinking not only of obvious issues like the place and the time, but also the lack of a parish infrastructure and the hostile reactions one can get from friends, family, and even clergy who do not understand the appeal of something they consider outdated and left behind, it is worthwhile to remind ourselves of why we are doing this in the first place. If something is worth doing, then it's worth persevering in, even at the cost of sacrifices. This chapter will set forth a number of reasons why, in spite of the inconveniences and minor persecutions we have experienced over the years, my family and I have grown to love the traditional Latin Mass and would never give it up. I share these reasons to encourage you either to begin attending the Usus Antiquior or to continue attending it. The first reason. You will be formed in the same way that the vast majority of the saints were formed. What some now call the extraordinary form was the ordinary form of the Mass for most of the history of the Church in the West. Since a Latin language rite of Mass recognizably in continuity with or in the same family as the 1962 Missali Romanum has been in place since the 4th century, we are talking, on a conservative estimate, of a millennium and a half of efficacious liturgical prayer on the lips and in the hearts of innumerable men, women, and children. The Roman Church seemed to be doing very well with this Mass as she spread throughout the world from the Mediterranean, evangelizing first Western Europe, then North and South America, Asia, and Africa. Wherever her missionaries went, they brought their Latin liturgical books and customs with them. This is the Mass that over 200 popes celebrated, among them St. Leo the Great, St. Gregory the Great, St. Leo the Ninth, St. Gregory the Seventh, St. Celestine V, St. Pius V, and St. Pius X. Texts or ceremonies of this Mass are cited and discussed by all the Western Fathers and Doctors of the Church, including St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Bede, St. Peter Damien, St. Anselm, St. Albert the Great, St. Bonaventure, St. Robert Bellarmine, St. Francis de Sales, and St. Alphonsus Liguori. St. Thomas Aquinas, whose awe-inspiring theological writings occupy some fifty folio volumes, celebrated his daily Dominican Rite Mass, a close relative of what we call the Tridentine, served by his secretary Reginald. Then they switched roles, and Thomas served Reginald's Mass. Not only did the angelic doctor write about the traditional Mass, 
He even had the rare privilege of contributing to it by composing, at the request of Pope Urban IV, the exquisite mass propers and office for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Speaking of poets, and thus by extension of artists, so widely respected was the Tridentine liturgy, which inspired centuries of the highest artistic creativity the world has ever known, that famous non-Catholics, such as Agatha Christie, Iris Murdoch, Kenneth Clark, Robert Graves, Yehudi Menuhin, and Vladimir Ashkenazi, came to its defense in 1971, imploring Pope Paul VI not to abolish the greatest cultural treasure of Western civilization. Plenty of famous Catholics, too, lamented its loss with sorrow and alarm, including Evelyn Waugh, Christopher Dawson, Graham Greene, David Jones, and J.R.R. Tolkien. This is the Mass during which St. Francis of Assisi and his early companions had visions of the crucified Lord and the release of souls from purgatory. The Mass at which St. Louis IX, the crusader king of France, assisted twice or three times a day. The Mass that St. Philip Neri had to distract himself from before he celebrated it, because it so easily sent him into ecstasies that lasted for hours. This is the Mass first celebrated on the shores of America by heroic Spanish and French missionaries, such as St. Isaac Jogues, who requested and received permission to keep offering it even after his fingers had been gnawed off by the Iroquois. The Mass blessed Miguel Pro risked his life to celebrate before being captured and martyred by the Mexican government in 1927. The Mass Father Damien of Molokai celebrated with leprous hands in the church he himself had built and painted in Hawaii. For the sake of offering this traditional Latin Mass, the Jesuits of Elizabethan England, chief among them St. Edmund Campion, went around from house to house in disguise, and were, most of them, caught, tried, convicted, hanged, and torn apart alive. This is the Mass that priests said secretly in England and Ireland during the dark days of persecution. The Mass Father Frederick Faber called the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. The Mass St. John Henry Newman said he would pray every moment of his life if he could. St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein, who was to die in the gas chambers of Auschwitz, became completely enraptured with this Mass. So did the doctors of the church, St. Hildegard of Bingen, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, and the Little Flower, St. Therese of Lisieux. This is the Mass St. Padre Pio insisted on celebrating right until his death in 1968. St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei, never stopped celebrating it to the time of his death in 1974. Our list could go on and on. What a glorious cloud of witnesses surrounds the traditional Latin Mass! Their holiness was forged like gold and silver in the furnace of this Mass, and it is an undeserved blessing that we, too, can seek and obtain the same formation. On most days of the year, the prayers, readings, and chants that these saints heard and pondered will be the very ones that we hear and ponder. 
Yes, I know that I am still in the presence of God and his saints at the new Mass, but I also know that a concrete historical link to all these saints has been severed, as well as a link to my own heritage as a Latin Rite Catholic. Even secular people recognize how wonderful it is to be able to live in a house built many generations ago, as long as it is in good condition, since they just don't make things like that anymore. And Catholics to this day appreciate worshipping in noble church buildings that have survived wars, famines, and plagues, ideologies and revolutions, and centuries of floods, earthquakes, and inclement weather. With far greater reason should we see the Holy Mass of our forefathers as a spacious, durable, and beautiful building we can still live in today, and one that is far better than anything we can build from scratch in our times. The venerable Roman rite of Mass is, says Joseph Shaw, the classical, the central and historically most widespread form of the Mass in the Western Church. For centuries it was attended by kings, soldiers, merchants, peasants, and children. It formed saints and scholars, converted sinners, sustained monks and nuns, inspired martyrs, and comforted the afflicted in a complete range of social and economic conditions. From the basilicas of ancient Rome to the battlefields of the Second World War, from the mission stations of Africa to the suffering church in communist China, nothing should stop you engaging fruitfully with it, as they did. There is a footnote that I skipped over that I would like to read for you. That there have been a few saints after and under the Novus Ordo does not prove that it is equal in its sanctifying power to the traditional Latin Mass, just as the fact that some demons can be expelled by the new rite of exorcism does not contradict the general agreement of the exorcists that the traditional Latin rite of exorcism is far more effective. At most, such things prove that God will not be thwarted by churchmen or their reforms. As theologians teach, God is not bound to his ordinances. He can sanctify souls outside of the use of sacraments, even though we are duty-bound to use the sacraments that he has given us. Analogously, he can sanctify a loving soul through a liturgy deficient in tradition, reverence, and beauty, and other qualities that ought to belong to it by natural and divine law, although in the normal course souls ought to avail themselves of these powerful aids to sanctity. That was from Peter Krasniewski's new book, Reclaiming Our Roman Catholic Birthright, The Genius and Timeliness of the Traditional Latin Mass, just out from Angelico Press. I hope that you'll all get a copy of this. It's really terrific. This is going to be a terrific resource for a lot of people who have questions. And um, it's especially, I think, going to be helpful, as uh, Peter wrote, for parents and uh, prospective parents of young children. Now, the timing of this book was really good uh, for me. Uh, first of all, I had some great conversations about 
the relationship of the Novus Ordo, the New Mass, and the traditional Latin Mass at the Priests Conference I just attended in West Virginia. It was sponsored by Scott Hahn's St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. A really terrific uh, conference. I recommend this to priests uh, for next year. Um, also, I had a really hard question put to me by email that I've been pondering how to answer. Now, sometimes when I, I get hard questions, I'll approach them by trying to turn the sock inside out. Uh, for example, today I get a question, how do we know for certain the Novus Ordo, done well, is not evil? Well, it's an interesting question. It's a very hard question to answer. Why? Let's turn the sock inside out and see what we find inside. If we hold that the older traditional Mass is better than the new Mass, and that the new Mass, or Novus Ordo, deprives us of certain things that are goods which we need, then we might, as some have argued, that the Novus Ordo is evil, because evil is the deprivation or the lack of what is good that we need. So, if there is nothing explicitly evil in the Novus Ordo, for example, there are no explicit heresies in the texts that I can think of, there is at least something lacking in the Novus Ordo. It's lacking something that is better, that, that we really do need, and therefore it would be evil for that. Now, that's a pesky argument, and I've struggled with it for a long time, because I don't want to call... I, I react strongly against a rite, call it, saying that a rite of mass approved by the church is something that's evil. And yet I firmly believe that the traditional mass is better than the newer mass and because there are certain things that we are deprived of in the Novus Ordo and that were changed, things that are good that I think we need. So I'm back at square one. Now, my personal experience and my own observation over the years helps me to form a response to this. Now, firstly, I was brought into the Catholic faith through the Novus Ordo and not through the traditional Latin Mass. And many, many people today, uh, most converts these days, are brought in through the Novus Ordo rather than the traditional Mass. So I think those numbers are going to shift. I think there are going to be a lot more people coming in through the older than the newer. That's just a, a demographic uh, consequence, I think, of the, of the sinkhole, demographic sinkhole that I think is opening up under the church right now. But I can talk about that at another time. Now, one might argue, um, as I have, that if the Novus Ordo is better and more effective to the extent that it is like the older traditional form, then why not just use the traditional form? And that argument is what led me more and more, many, many years ago, to want to know the traditional form. And this was long before I entered seminary, long before I was a priest. The idea is this. At the, the place where I discovered the Catholic Church, at my parish, uh, home parish, St. Agnes in St. Paul, Minnesota, celebrated the Novus Ordo beautifully. 
Monsignor Schuller wanted to just just wanted to do what the council asked for, but he wanted to do it in a way that was absolutely consistent with the Roman tradition, and so it had had all the beautiful Roman elements of of vestments and music and uh, the dignity and the style of of the Roman rite as it was traditionally celebrated, and of course there we can say that because it had all of those elements it was celebrated well. And that was, remember, part of the question, how do we know for certain the Novus Ordo done well is not evil? Well, you can see the fruits of it. Many, many converts. And in the time that Monsignor Schuller was the pastor there, he was pastor for uh, 33 years. And there were 30 men from that parish who were ordained to the priesthood. And that's just that one dimension of uh, priestly ordinations, vocations coming from that parish. So you know something from its fruit. So that's one point. So there's another way also of considering the Novus Ordo in, in terms that acknowledge that it is not all that it could be without going on to the point of calling it evil because of that deprivation point of view. And I have in my mind a term that a friend of mine Scott Hahn used recently in describing the TLM and the Novus Ordo and the differences between them in a video interview that he did with a young man at, recently at the site uh, called Mass of Ages. Uh, during that interview he used a very interesting term and I asked him about this uh, also when I saw him uh, in uh, West Virginia at this priest conference that his center sponsored and has really gotten me thinking. Now, one of the things that we see repeated in salvation history is that whenever there was a rupture with God and his covenant, and there was some sort of fall, God stooped down to raise man back up, or the chosen people back up, to a place that was even more blessed, with even greater potential than before. You think of the fall of our first parents. That is described in the church's own liturgy, in the exultet of uh, the vigil of Easter, as the felix culpa. This is, oh, the happy fault, which opened up for us greater and greater gifts than we would otherwise have had without the fall. Not that the fall wasn't an evil thing, it certainly was, but because of that, something qualitatively greater came out of it. Uh, for example, when the people fell and worshipped the golden calf, we received the law, partly as a, 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 a correction, a punitive kind of thing, as a correction. You know, every time, every time uh, the people broke their covenant with God, He gave them more laws and, and changed something and imposed something on them. But it was for their good. It was a, it's a correction. He did this out of paternal love for the people He embraced. So after the golden calf thing, uh, we received the law but also a different kind of priesthood. He took the priesthood away from all males and entrusted it to a priestly caste, which in salvation history we see was one more step toward the magnificent priesthood that we have under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Each time the people broke the covenant, God established a new and greater covenant in a greater way. Um, in a way, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, whom uh, Peter talked about in 
the chapter I read to you, uh, has a similar concept. He, ca he calls it an eu catastrophe. That's Tolkien's term for what he does, does in, his, in his plots. A catastrophe, as you know, is a terrible, disastrous event that chal deeply challenges us. But Tolkien put that eu on it. That's the Greek uh, prefix meaning good. So it's a good catastrophe, if that makes any sense. See, the tension between those two concepts produces a result that could not have come about except through a catastrophe. Some good thing comes out of it that could never have resulted without the catastrophe. Think, for example, about the fruits of the crucifixion and death of our Lord. Certainly a catastrophe, but what it resulted in was the greatest good that there could ever be. That's an eu catastrophe. Another eu catastrophe could be the deprivation and repression of the traditional mass that we had for so many years. Because through that deprivation and that repression, and even the outward hostility that was shown to the mass and the people who wanted it, especially against the people who wanted it. You know, it's not, sometimes you get the idea that these people, it's not that they don't like the old mass. They don't like the people who like the old mass. But because of that deprivation and that repression and that hostility that we had for so many years, perhaps it has helped the revival of the traditional liturgical forms in a way that is qualitatively better than what we had before. Even though qualitatively we still have a long way to go, maybe it's qualitatively being celebrated better than it was back in the day before all the changes took place. That deprivation, that repression of what we had is a kind of an eu catastrophe which pr produced something better. It certainly has given us a greater appreciation of what we had. Kind of like the Joni Mitchell song, right? Don't it seem to always go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? You know, they gave us a parking lot, you see, over, you know, something that we had beautiful, that was beautiful. So we have today in most places in the Latin church a mass that is deprived of many of the elements that the, that the traditional mass has. And it is arguably, as Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI described, artificial in its origin, uh, and it constitute a rupture of continuity with our liturgical heritage that I think produced a disastrous, here's that like catastrophic blow to our Catholic identity that we are struggling with in so many different sectors of the church's life today. And while we might say that the two forms are one right, you know, we hear this all the time, There, there's one Roman right in two forms. Well, that's certainly true juridically, and I think that was the brilliance of Summorum Pontificum, that Benedict XVI said, okay, as long as, 
as long as a priest has faculties to say one form, he also has the faculties to say the other form as well. So juridically, the two forms are run one right, but theologically, uh, historically, obviously they are pretty different. And I think it's um, unwise to uh, deny the obvious, uh, this kind of the spirit or the essence written into the two different forms of mass, one of them which developed organically over many, many, many centuries, and the other one artificially put together with lots of redacting of certain concepts out of the prayers and very consciously eliminating reference to certain concepts uh, uh, throughout the, the prayers of the, the Novus Ordo, the, the proper prayers, they have very different spirits written into them, and that's because they wanted different effect. The, 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 the redactors of the Novus Ordo were trying to create a certain effect that was different from the, uh, the effect produced by the traditional Mass, and they knew what they were doing. There's an interesting, interesting uh, book about this by the old... Um, the former master of ceremonies for John Paul II, uh, Piero Marini, uh, in which he talks about the work of the concilium, what they were trying to do in this committee that was formed during the Second Vatican Council to implement the things mandated by the Council Fathers concerning the liturgy. Well, they put this thing together, and this is where the famous Cardinal Ercaro and the infamous Annibale Bunini were involved. And, and Piero Marini was a secretary to Bunini, so he saw this, this up close and personal, personally. And he remarks that when the, this concilium, this committee, this work group, got its actual mandate from the Pope, they were really excited because they realized that by changing the liturgy, they were going to be changing the church. And I thought that was a, a very telling quote in that book. Uh, the book was entitled, A Challenging Reform. And uh, the exact quote that I have in mind is on page 46. Quote, they met in public to begin one of the greatest liturgical reforms in the history of the Western Church. Unlike the reform after Trent, it was all the greater because it also dealt with doctrine. You see what happened there? You see, the, after the Council of Trent, the liturgy needed to be reformed to express the doctrine of Trent. But this reform that really went way beyond what the Council Fathers mandated, and they knew they were going beyond the mandates of the Council Fathers, aimed at changing doctrine. And they succeeded. Uh, the work of the Concilium in revising the Missali Romanum changed the Church's doctrine. And when you change the way you pray, you change what you believe, and vice versa. That's the Lex Orandi Lex Credendi, and as uh, Peter mentioned in his book, Lex Vivendi, because the way we live then changes as well. You change one, and all of the other ones will change. So, uh, now back to my topic here. Now, sometimes I will use an analogy of food. F 
for describing the differences in the between the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass. And the analogy of food, I think, is legitimate to use because St. Paul used it in talking about the spiritual food uh, he was giving to his spiritual children. Right now you need milk and you know later you get solid food and, and that. So you think about this. Um, no, people, some people have been offended by my analogy um, that I'm going to tell you. I mean, absolutely no offense has ever been intended in this. It's just an image that is so human, so much a part of so many people's lived experience that is very quick and very useful. People can get this analogy quickly. So as I've written and, and said many times before in talks that I've given and on the blog and in articles I've written for publications, uh, to be grown-up Catholics, we need a Mass for grown-ups. The Mass that grown-up Catholics want is more like a thick red T-bone steak and a good Cabernet rather than pureed carrots and a little bit of milk like uh, like babies need. You know, if you have some pureed peas or goop, you know, some other kind of goop, well, that's fine for babies. Babies need goop. If you love your babies, you give them what babies can eat at that age. But when they grow up, they need something more. You know, if you love your baby, you don't show your love by shoving a T-bone into its toothless mouth. But similarly, you don't show love to grown-ups by giving them baby goop. Unless, uh, for example, as uh, Shakespeare's character, Jaques, points out, they've gotten to that age in life where we are sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. But, uh, you know, leaving that aside, you know, adults can survive on baby goop, but they won't thrive on baby goop. And just as babies won't be able to, you know, eat what, what you know, adults eat. So we have food that are proportioned for, for two different levels of Catholic maturity, I think. Now, mind you, I'm using an analogy here that I think is a beautiful, normal, human, and lovely image, and that's feeding children. And Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He says... Uh, I cannot address you as spiritual men yet, but you are still uh, men of the flesh. As babes in Christ, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even yet you are not ready. So we find what is properly proportioned to the people whom we love. Okay, so I, now I want to try to flesh that out a little bit, if you'll permit that fleshy uh, connection, with something that I was talking about and heard from, from Scott Hahn. It's another piece to add to that food analogy, and that's a little more, a little more theological. Um, it's a concept called divine accommodation. Now, a while ago, I was talking about the evils that can come in to this life, and some of them are EU catastrophes, and not just catastrophes. But whatever they are, God foresees and permits them, or sometimes he will inflict certain corrections on us, which are hard to perceive as anything other than evils, 
while they're going on, and that's because of our limited perspective. But God loves us, and he makes sure that we will get what we need for what's good for us, and he knows what's good for us better than we do. Now, the very fact that God is interested in us at all is a manifestation of divine accommodation, divine condescension. God condescends to work with us. So we may have a way of looking at how we got the Novus Ordo. If we are dealing with the questions of the whys and wherefores of the Novus Ordo, see, I'm starting to think in terms of divine accommodation. I'm starting to think about this in terms of synkatabasis. Synkatabasis. There are different elements in that, that term. There's syn, the presence element, and then there's the lowering and the raising movement, a lowering movement and a raising movement. It's like this. God condescends to enter into our reality. The very essence of the incarnation is a condescension to enter down into our reality. Transubstantiation is another example. Being God allowing himself, Christ allowing himself to be placed on our tongues in Holy Communion is an example of this divine accommodation of God's condescension, his stooping down to us. Why does he stoop down to us in our lowliness? Because he wants to raise us up to where we couldn't otherwise be on our own. There's a mysterious contact with the divine that then transforms us. God enters into our reality. Once we figure out what's going on, once we figure out how magnificent this divine accommodation is, well, then we're going to want to pray in a certain way that expresses our gratitude and also pray in a certain way that is going to shape us and form us and make us more and more and more and more open to what God wants to give us. And there, because there's nothing easy about what happens in Mass, attempts to make it easy or even immediately accessible can be directly contradictory to God's gracious divine condescension. That sin catabasis of, of God, his lowering himself so as to raise us to him, knowing that there's something beyond goop when we get older and want to eat something, and still sticking with the goop is wrong, okay? So, no matter how low we go, God is always going to try to stoop down to find us. This is what the Lord, for example, is talking about in the parable of the lost sheep. That, uh, the unbelievable lengths to which God will go to bring us back to him in safety and in grace. And that's the essence of his fatherhood for us, his children. Back to the analogy of, of feeding little Junior his, his goop, okay? Think about how a father will feed the very young, his very young child. Uh, junior is there in the high chair, and dad, father might have to do things that in un any other circumstance would be unthinkable and beneath his dignity. So what does he do? He makes funny sounds, and he makes faces, 
keep little stupor Mundi's attention while he swoops with the airplane with a spoonful of goop into baby's mouth hanger or the choo-choo is coming to the tunnel. But see, that's exactly what baby needs. He needs funny noises and goops, the goop that keeps his attention and something that he can eat. But adults have outgrown that. And the father will do that happily and willingly for his child. But in love for his older children, he's not going to do that same thing for them and try to treat them in the same way. He's going to give them a more complex relationship. He's going to give them something more complex to eat. He is going to treat them, instead of with funny faces and choo-choo noises, he's going to treat them with a, with a pleasant, joyful, and yet somehow stoic warmth, or a warm stoicism that also includes joy, um, a closely distant um, proximity that manifests the transcendent aspect of God, how God expresses who he is, through his images that are male, as opposed to the more uh, warm, intimate, intimate and, and imminent aspect of God and his love for us that's imaged more in, in femaleness. I'm digressing into that, but you get my point. Okay, tracking back to the question that I had received, is the Novus Ordo evil, even celebrated properly, and uh, using the food analogy and using also the concept of uh, synchotabasis, uh, let's try to sum up a little bit. Is it possible that God, foreseeing that there would be a church in massive crisis, indeed all of civilization in crisis, in his providence, provided for a time like Paul described, um, that there would come a time when people would not bear to hear true teaching, a time when a demographic sinkhole would, was about to open up under the church, a time when our Catholic identity was, was under true attack from outside and also from within the church itself. God, foreseeing this, took something that could have been a total catastrophe and maybe turned it into an eu catastrophe. Now, think about this. Joseph Ratzinger once was asked what the role of the Holy Spirit is in a conclave to pick a pope. And he opined that it's not the role of the Holy Spirit to pick the pope, but rather the role of the Holy Spirit is to make sure that the one that men pick isn't total disaster for the church. On the other hand, I mean, that's how you, how do we describe, you know, explain the choice of someone like, you know, a pope like Alexander VI, right? The Borgia Pope. Did the Holy Spirit pick him? Well, once I heard Ross Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, or Hell's Bible, say that maybe the Holy Spirit did pick really bad popes, precisely as afflictions to help correct the church. In other words, this is that idea of the eu catastrophe. Something qualitatively 
better might come out of the hardship that we experience. So, in God's providence, it's possible that he took, that he prevented the full scale of Protestantizing efforts of certain people who were working on the development of the Novus Ordo. Look, it's absolutely clear, and it's ridiculous to deny that the people working in the liturgical reform were trying to change the church massively, revolutionize the church, uh, even in worldly and secular ways. Some of them weren't trying to be worldly or secular, but some of them were. And the things that they were doing were wrong and were, were evil. And especially in the way that the uh, reforms, you know, the Novus Ordo and the reforms were applied, the abuses that were made out of the excuse of having something new in order to, you know, obliterate uh, virtually everything that we had before. But God can work even with that and can bring something positive out of it. And I'll stress that while baby food is great for babies, it isn't good for adults. And we can survive on baby food, but we won't thrive on baby food, either in body or in spirit. We will never have, we adults would never have quite the force or the energy to go beyond a certain point in our efforts. We just wouldn't have the fuel. And that should, for adults, increase our hunger for something more. And God, foreseeing the time that we would live in, then also provided for the too short pontificate of Benedict XVI, and probably the most important thing that came out of that pontificate, Summorum Pontificum, the Emancipation Proclamation for the older traditional Roman Rite, and that we would have it just in time, providentially, just in time before the massive demographic sinkhole opens up under the church that I think we're facing. And also, who knows what else is on the horizon? You know, we're dealing with COVID, but we also might be dealing with, with something else. Okay, I've rambled for quite a bit now, so let's wrap this up. Um, in short, I want more for you. I hope that you will want it too. Um, I think that as as we begin to appreciate more and more God's magnificent condescension to us and his love for us manifested in the church's sacred liturgical worship that we will always want more greater contact with the mystery that will transform us in that long process that we're given in life that foreshadows the eternal transformation we will undergo in the heavenly liturgy. We shouldn't be content just to rest with the lowest common denominator or the the immediately perceptible that something that's easy, you know, the easy, here comes the choo-choo, we're going to have everything in the vernacular, everything is going to be spoken out loud, we have to see everything, we have to even see Father's face because he's looking at us all the time over the uh, the height chair tray. Yeah, I think I just, I want more for you. I want, I want steak and cab for you. 
not you know baby goop because as I say we can't thrive on that and once we realize that there's more more fuel to fuel our vocations and to fuel our lives we're going to desire that especially in our sacred liturgical worship because everything that we are as Catholics has to start there and it has to return to it sacred liturgical worship we are our rights if you want lowest common denominator rights really easy well I want more for you and may God bless you please say a prayer for me as I will for you this is Father John Zilsdorf